a tool that allegedly collects 90% of the world's internet traffic. Amazon fired an employee for a social media post, ways you can help the internet blackout in Iran, a ton of data breaches, and much more. Welcome to Surveillance Report 104, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. Henry from TechLore is currently out on adventures and will be returning soon. In the meantime, I am Nathan from The New Oil. Our promo segment this week is the same as it has been, a reminder that you can support us via Patreon or Monero. Patreon is a recurring payment service that pays us in fiat currency, and in return, you get perks, like you don't have to listen to this sponsor pitch, you get show notes, you get to ask a question that we sometimes answer at the end of the show, and things like that. Monero is a cryptocurrency that is privacy-focused and therefore is about as anonymous as you can get on the internet and send payments. It's not perfect, but it's pretty freaking good. The drawback being, of course, you do not get the perks that you would with Patreon. So if you like Surveillance Report and you want to see us keep going, then please consider supporting us in one of those two ways or both. It's entirely up to you. But either way, we do see your donations. We appreciate them very much. Thank you so much for your support and keeping us going. Before we jump in this week, I have a couple of corrections that I need to issue. Number one, we covered a story last week about Chrome bringing fingerprint protection to incognito tabs. I apologize, I was not on my A game last week. That was literal. They're they're literally on Android, you can lock incognito tabs and require your fingerprint to unlock them. Uh, My bad, I completely misread that story, I don't know how. Correction two, the TikTok AI influencer story was not true. The creator who did it thought it would be a good, like, joke, I guess. Not not really a prank. I don't think he meant it in a mean-spirited way to deceive people. But uh, he is, in fact, a visual effects artist. And he just decided it would be a fun thing to do and worked with his girlfriend to make it seem like it was fake. So before I say the next thing, I just want to say we do take responsibility for not doing our due diligence. We should have researched that story a lot better. And I apologize that we didn't. I don't want to let us off the hook. But at the same time, I think it's worth noting that Two experienced tech people. I I don't want to call myself an expert because I know that I have a lot to learn and there are people who have forgotten more than I will ever know. But two people who like immerse ourselves in tech and deepfakes and AI for a, a living or at least for a very considerable amount of our work. Two experienced tech people heard this story and neither one of us were like, that doesn't sound right. Like, both of us heard that story and we're just like, oh, yeah, I guess we're at that level now. I think everything we said in that story about how it's increasingly difficult to tell truth from fiction and all that kind of stuff, I I think that is still a valid statement based on that alone. And it's only a matter of time before something like this is real and the AI really is that good. Again, I'm not trying to let us off the hook. I apologize that we didn't do better research on that. And thank you, all of us who fact-checked us and pointed it out and kept us honest. We are trying our best to wade through all the news here and we don't always get it right. We will try to do better in the future. With that, let's jump into the highlight story. We're starting off with a mass monitoring tool that includes internet browsing and email data that was purchased by the U.S. military. There's going to be a lot of quoting the article here. Multiple branches of the U.S. military have bought access to a powerful internet monitoring tool that claims to cover over 90% of the world's internet traffic, and which in some cases provides access to people's email data, browsing history, and other information such as their sensitive internet cookies, according to contract data and other documents reviewed by Motherboard. The network data includes data from over 550 collection points worldwide to collection 
collection points in Europe, the Middle East, North and South America, Africa, and Asia, and is updated with at least 100 billion new records a day. A description of the platform in a U.S. government procurement record reviewed by Motherboard reads, and this uh, program is called Augury, by the way. It adds that Augury provides access to, quote, petabytes of current and historical data, which is, uh, for those of you who are not technical, that is just, that is a lot of data. Petabytes is a lot of data. The Augury platform makes a wide array of different types of internet data available to its users, including packet capture data, known as PCAP, related to email, remote desktop, and file sharing protocols. PCAP generally refers to a full capture of data and encompasses very detailed information about network activity. PCAP data includes the request sent from one server to another and the response from that server to. Yeah, so several experts described this as, quote, insane, and another one said it was, quote, everything but the smell of electricity. It also provides, uh, this is not a quote, this is a summary. It also provides web browser activities such as URLs visited and cookie usage, email data, which they didn't really specify what that was, and NetFlow data, which is the actual flow of data, which the article claims can be used to trace VPN traffic. Uh, team Simru, Simru, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, allegedly collects this data from ISPs in exchange for threat intelligence, but that's not... We're not 100% sure about that. The article isn't fully sure where they get this data from. Okay, quoting the article again. Team Simru wrote in an email that the Augury platform is not designed to target specific users or user activity. The platform specifically does not possess subscriber information necessary to tie records back to any users, unquote. Some have used Team Simru's data as part of investigations that aim to identify specific computers and then contact the person using it, though. In July of 2021, researchers at Citizen Lab published a report about Israeli spyware vendor Kandaroo. As part of that, the researchers wrote that they used Tim Simru's data to identify a computer they believed had been infected with Kandaroo's malware and in turn contacted the owner of that computer. Unquote. So this is basically, uh, it's like the whole anonymized location data thing. It can't be anonymous. It can very easily be de-anonymized, especially when you're allegedly collecting 90% of the internet traffic. Like, how could you not de-anonymize that? There's a quote in here. It says, beyond the day job as, as CEO of Team Simru, Rabbi Rob Thomas also sits on board of the Tor Project, a privacy-focused nonprofit that maintains the Tor software. Unquote. It's certainly not a good look for the Tor project, and I know right now there's all the Tor is a honeypot people are going crazy in the comments. I don't really have anything to say to that, to be totally honest. I don't really know. It's definitely not a good look for Tor. Tor is still open source, and I'm, I'm not here to say Tor doesn't have problems and concerns, but I mean, it is open source, and it is trusted by a lot of experts, so it's certainly not a good look. That's all I'm going to say there. I, I don't think this is a reason to run screaming from Tor if you use it, but it's definitely a little concerning talking about this actual augury software it's important to know a few things before we all just like lose our minds and run for the hills because this is a scary story number one they claim to cover over 90 percent of the world's internet traffic we have seen in the past how some of these tools exaggerate their claims because they want to make that government contract sale even if they don't quite cover 90 percent, i'm sure it's still enough to be concerning there's also the uh, bit about tracing VPN traffic. This isn't actually new. We've covered this before on a previous episode. It's a bit of a high level attack, but it is possible to trace VPN traffic. And that's kind of what Tor is trying to do with the whole multi-hop thing is make it significantly harder to trace VPN traffic. So if you uh, are not a Tor user, I would say to use a double hop VPN. All three of the VPN providers I recommend at the New Oil offer this. For some of them, it is like a, a paid advanced feature. We have long said here that you should consider anything you put in a digital format to be public. Like even if it's encrypted, even if it's the best encryption out there, like you still never know if somebody's going to screenshot it or if there's a zero day. So I think this is very, very much concerning. 
But before we all go full Mr. Robot and like throw our RAM in the microwave and start drilling holes through the hard drive, I think we should take a step back. And I, I think this is a good reminder to take a look at your privacy strategy and see if there's anything you could be doing better and to consider this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, I, I don't think this is necessarily something that we should all get super paranoid and lose sleep over. There's still a lot of great tools in place to protect our content, like again, Signal, Double Hop VPNs, Tor, if you still trust that, things like that. There's end-to-end -end encrypted emails. I mean, I guarantee you all of this stuff they're talking about, like email data, I guarantee you they're pulling that from like Gmail, Yahoo, stuff like that. There were no specifically encrypted channels name-checked in this article. So we have no reason to doubt that everything's backdoored. We have no reason to doubt that everything's been hacked or broken. We have to be mindful of our metadata. Again, I, I wanna stress, I don't think we should all like go crazy and get super scared and get super paranoid. This is very, very concerning, but I think it's also important to remember that there are defenses out there for some of this stuff and we just have to be very mindful and very cautious. All right, with that, we'll move into data breaches and we have a lot of them. So I apologize, I'm gonna to try to blow through these as quick as I can. We're gonna start off with ask.fm, whose database of 350 million users is allegedly for sale online. For those who don't know, ask.fm is a question and answer platform. If this is true, it would be one of the largest data breaches of all time. It includes 607 repositories, plus things like Giti, Gitia, I don't know how that's pronounced, Jira and Confluence databases. Based on the database fields, this includes things like user ID, username, email, Facebook ID, Twitter ID, VK ID, Instagram ID, and more. And unfortunately, it seems the company was using SHA-1 to hash passwords, so basically all those are about to get breached. Ask.fm, when they were contacted by these reporters, had a very aggressive response. Quote, Ask.fm has not suffered any security incidences or any quote-unquote recent Ask.fm hack, as your email suggests. Therefore, we have no comment to make on any such falsities. Whoever's on PR really needs to dial it back that was very overly aggressive for a, a reporter just asking for a statement. If this is true, the breach comes from March, 2020 and quote, data suggests that Ask.fm knew about the breach as early back as 2020. We mentioned that before where like, you need to be proactive with your security and your data because it is unfortunately really common for companies to get breached, try to sweep it under the rug and not tell you for years at a time or ever. So you can't rely on that email that says, hey, we got a breach, go change your password. You have to be proactive and just assume it's already out there. Optus was hit by a cyber attack with millions of customers potentially having personal information compromised. Optus is a major telecommunications provider in Australia. This affects about 2.8 million customers and includes passport and license numbers, email and home addresses, dates of birth and phone numbers. Payment details and passwords were not compromised. And again, at this point, this is a maybe. In my opinion, this is a most likely. Optus has not confirmed that any data was stolen. They have confirmed the attack. They said all their systems are back up and running. So service should be running. If you're an Optus customer, there's a really good chance that your data has been caught up in this. If you're an Australian, please write in and let me know if you guys have something like a credit freeze and who your credit agencies are, if that's a thing. We actually have an email where you guys can contact us. Surveillance report at protonmail.com. Feel free to send it there. Henry and I both see it. We both have access. We try to check it at least once a week. I don't know if you guys can do credit freezes. If you can, please let us know. I personally would really like to know that. Revolut hack exposes data of 50,000 users and fuels new phishing waves. So thanks to the reader who alerted me to this. Again, surveillance report at protonmail.com. This occurred Sunday night and is being called, quote, highly targeted, unquote. They didn't really explain what they meant by that, but they're probably talking about social engineering. According to the article, Revolut is a financial technology company that has seen rapid growth, now offering banking, money management and investment services to customers all over the world. The attacker had access to data on 0.16% of customers, 0.16, which is about 50,000 customers. 
This includes email addresses, full names, postal addresses, phone numbers, limited card data, and account data. Personally, I find this really disappointing because the new oil recommends Revolut as a payment masking option in Europe. So that is very unfortunate. Um, it's kind of like a European alternative to privacy.com. Next up, Kiwi Farms has been breached. Assume passwords and emails have been leaked. So for those of you who are fortunate enough not to have heard of this website, Kiwi Farms is a forum that is notorious for doxing, harassment, and generally picking on people. Usually trans people, not always, but typically. The admin has said that attackers were able to access his account and possibly all other user accounts. He said to assume that passwords, email addresses, and IP addresses from at least the last 30 days were leaked. The admin claims to have been a victim of session hijacking, which is an attack that we've discussed before, where uh, basically if you say stay logged in all the time or you are currently logged in, malware can steal the authentication cookie that's on your device. And then when they put it on their device, it's basically like they're logged in. You've entered your password, you've done the two-factor, you're all good to go. So the attacker was able to upload a malicious file and then embed that in the file so that any user who loaded the page that file was on was uh, scooped up by this attack, which included the admin. Logs show that the attack likely failed, but the admin is still encouraging users to err on the side of caution. Personal opinion, Kiwi Farms is um, notorious for not being the best place on the internet, to put it nicely, and yet their admin is being more cautious and more transparent than like Revolut, than like, who else did we talk about? Optus then uh, ask FM. That's just, that's amazing. Like of all the people to actually be transparent and cautious, it's freaking Kiwi Farms. Who would have guessed? Our next data breach comes from American Airlines who had a data breach after employee email compromise. Employee email accounts were accessed. There are not a lot of details on how it happened or how many customers were impacted, probably more social engineering. The data affected included employee and customer names, dates of birth, mailing addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, driver's license numbers, passport numbers, and or quote, certain medical information, unquote. They're offering the two years of credit monitoring via Experian. Our next data breach is a little bit different. The headline says, artist finds private medical record photos in popular AI training data set. I'm gonna read the article here. Late last week, a California-based AI artist who goes by the name Lapine discovered private medical photos taken by her doctor in 2013, referenced in the LAION 5B image set, Leon 5B, I guess, which is a scrape of publicly available images on the web. AI researchers download a subset of that data to train AI image synthesis models such as Stable Diffusion and Google Imaging. Lapine discovered her medical photos on a site called Have I Been Trained, which we will talk about later in the show, which lets artists see if their work is on the Leon 5B dataset. She was surprised to discover a set of two before and after medical photos of her face, which had only been authorized for private use by her doctor, unquote. The article goes on to say that Lapine's doctor died in 2018, so she suspects whoever received his files after that either inadvertently or intentionally uploaded them, or maybe they were caught in a data breach. Quote, during our search for Lapine's photos, we discovered thousands of similar medical patient records in the data set, each of which may have a similar questionable ethical or legal status, many of which have likely been integrated in popular image synth synthesis models that companies like Midjourney and Stability AI offer as a commercial service, unquote. As of this time, there is really no recourse to have these photos removed. The re reporters contacted who is it, Leon 5B or whatever? Whoever was holding these photos, they contacted them. They basically said, well, we don't have these photos. We just link to them. We like scrape the links. So if you want the photo taken down, you have to go contact whoever's hosting the photo, which is um, kind of a crappy response really, because some websites don't respond to takedown requests. If you're into privacy, you probably know that. That's just a really convenient way for them to pass the buck. And it's very unfortunate. Our next two stories come from Portugal. The first says, Tap Air Portugal, hit by cyber attack, passenger data stolen. This includes names, nationalities, sex, dates of birth, addresses, and quote, email and telephone contact details, unquote. The attack began almost a month ago and is currently being investigated and did not include any payment data. 
Other than that, we really don't have any details on like how many people were affected or how it happened. If we hear anything, we'll keep you updated. The next one says DGS exposed data from users of SNS and it was solved quote quickly. So DGS is very similar to the American Center for Disease Control and SNS is similar to the UK's NHS, National Health Society, I think it is, at least according to the uh, viewer who alerted us of this story and the kind of background they gave. The data includes taxpayer number, address, cell phone number, name, and date of birth. The database was accessible without authentication and has since been locked down. They did not say how many patients were potentially affected or anything like that. Next, we have a quick update to the Uber story. Uber is linking the breach to the Lapsus group and blaming a contractor for the attack. That pretty much says it all. They've managed to link this to Lapsus, who is apparently still active, and they're trying to say it was a third-party contractor. I think that's their way of trying to distance themselves and pass the buck, but whatever. And then we have another update, $35 million fine for Morgan Stanley after unencrypted, unwiped hard drives are auctioned. I'm pretty sure we covered this in a past SR. I could be remembering that wrong, but basically, well, I'll just quote the article. Morgan Stanley on Tuesday agreed to pay the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, a $35 million penalty for data security lapses that included unencrypted hard drives from decommissioned data centers being resold on auction sites without first being wiped, unquote. Kind of a low fine, not only because Morgan Stanley is a huge bank, but also because... This went on for years and included sensitive customer information. I guess it's something, so it's an update. There you go, it's an update. We're now gonna move into companies. We're gonna start off with an interesting one. An Amazon driver was fired for posting photos of a customer's dildo to Reddit. I'm gonna quote the article. An Amazon delivery driver was fired for posting a photo of a customer's dildo to Reddit in a subreddit for Amazon drivers. In the photo, the shipping label is shown pasted straight onto the original packaging and the driver's thumb covers where the customer's name and address is, unquote. If you check the article, they have a picture. It is so obvious what it was. Amazon made no effort to hide the purchase, which is kind of messed up. Longtime viewers know I'm kind of a sex positive person. I don't mind covering these stories, but I mean, some people want to be discreet and that's kind of messed up to just throw the person's name and address right on the box. Like, come on, Amazon. That's, that's not cool. Nine days later, Hertod, which I guess was this person's Reddit username, posted a photo update in the subreddit with the caption, my birthday present from my DSP, showing that he did end up getting fired because of the post. The photo is a screenshot of a WhatsApp, co WhatsApp conversation between him and presumably his boss. Here's the part that I thought was really fun. When Motherboard initially reached out to Amazon for comment, we did not yet know Hertod's real name, which I'm not going to include here because... Uh, well, here. Amazon gave you my full name, he said when we reached out to him for content. I don't mind it being attached to the article, but it's a bit ironic they fired me for a breach of privacy and then give out my full name. His full name is in the article, but obviously, as he pointed out, that's pretty screwed up, so I'm not gonna say it here. The real lesson here, when I first read this story, be careful what you post online. What if he did like working there, and now he just lost a job he liked? That could happen to anybody. Just, just be really careful what you post online, guys. Our next story, Facebook users sue Meta, accusing the company of tracking on iOS through a loophole. So this lawsuit centers around Facebook's in-app browser, which we have covered on a couple of different surveillance reports, and basically says that Meta was breaking numerous terms of service and privacy laws by tracking users via the in-app browser, even if they selected not to be tracked on Apple devices. So we've also mentioned this, Apple has app tracking transparency. Highly recommend you turn that on if you're an iPhone user. You go into the privacy settings, like the uh, actual settings of the phone, and then under privacy, and you can turn off, um, like, allow apps to request to track me or something. And it makes it harder for apps to track you. Not impossible, but harder. And one loophole is Facebook has their own in-app browser where when you click a link in Facebook, instead of directing to Safari or Brave or whatever browser you've chosen for the phone, they have their own little in-app browser where they could, in theory, inject JavaScript and then track you. Sometimes they can even see what you're typing. Again, we covered all this in a previous episode. So this lawsuit is basically saying like, hey, we clicked in the options that we didn't want to be tracked and you tracked us anyways, and that's breaking 
tons of laws and policies and stuff like that. The law is slow to move. This is probably going to take a couple years, but if we hear anything on this, we will keep you guys updated. Our next story, Clearview AI used by police to find criminals is now in public defenders' hands. Quoting the article, for the last few years, Clearview AI's tool has been largely restricted to law enforcement, but the company now plans to offer access to public defenders. Han Tontat, the chief executive, said that this would help, quote, balance the scales of justice, unquote, but critics of the company are skeptical given the legal and ethical concerns that swirl around Clearview AI's groundbreaking technology. Quoting Jerome Greco, who oversees a forensic technology lab at the Legal Aid Society in New York City, I think it's a rare situation in which most defense attorneys would want to use it. This is mostly being done as a PR stunt to try push back against the negative publicity that Clearview has about its tool and how it's being used by law enforcement, unquote. As far as the privacy concerns, like the privacy aspects of this story, that pretty much sums it up. They're expanding who's allowed to use it. We have been incredibly critical of Clearview in the past. They claim that they like vet all their customers and you can only use it for finding criminals, but yet Clearview has been used by like, first of all, it's been abused by the people who are supposed to have it. Like there's stories of law enforcement officers using it to like stalk their exes and stuff. But then it's, they've also sold it to repressive countries and regimes. We're not fans of Clearview around here. And unfortunately it looks like they're just expanding their use of it. One last company story. This comes from Proton VPN, who says, we replaced VPN servers in India to keep your data private. For those who are just joining us, India has passed a new law that basically says if you're a consumer VPN provider, like you provide VPNs to individuals, you have to start logging data basically so we can find anybody who breaks the law. And numerous VPN providers have said, we're not gonna play ball and we're gonna pull out of India. Proton, if I remember correctly, originally they said, we're not gonna play ball, but we're also not gonna pull our servers. I guess they found a better, better way to do this. They have removed all their Indian servers, but they've worked out an arrangement where Indian users can connect to servers in Singapore that still deliver an Indian IP address. This can be done via smart routing, so make sure you have that setting enabled if you're from India, and you can get more details in the article. With that, let's move into research. We're gonna start off with one of those really technical stories that I wish Henry was here to cover. It says, prototype pollution bug in Chromium bypassed sanitizer API. I'm gonna go ahead and quote the article here. A prototype pollution bug in the Chromium project allowed attackers to bypass Sanitizer API, a built-in browser library for removing potentially malicious code from user-controlled input sources. Prototype pollution is a type of JavaScript vulnerability that allows attackers to exploit the rules of the programming language to change an application's behavior and compromise it in various ways. As a proof of concept, Benkowski, the researcher who found this, showed that the API misses sanitizing a JavaScript snippet embedded in an SVG object. I think this might be the same thing that happened with Kiwi Farms earlier, because they mentioned that they embedded a, something that looked like an SVG. But anyways, once the supposedly sanitized SVG is inserted into the page, the JavaScript code is executed. In his report, Benkowski notes that for the vulnerability to work, the browser's hashtag enable experimental web platform features must be enabled. So I think that's a, a Chromium flag. According to Benkowski, he says, my guess is that there's a low amount of people with this flag enabled. However, the sanitizer API is enabled by default in Chrome 105, which was released at the end of August, so the impacted user base is now greater. The article suggested that the bug is fixed. I'm not totally sure. There's like one sentence there where they said something like, this led to some fixes, and then they just kind of brushed over it. So I'm not sure if this has been fixed or if it's still an issue. Beware of that and keep your stuff updated for whenever they do roll out fixes. 
Our next story, privacy gaps in Apple's data collection scheme revealed. Quoting the article again, companies such as Apple and Microsoft use LDP to collect user data without learning private information that could be traced back to individuals. However, the new paper presented at the peer-reviewed Usenix Security Symposium reveals how individuals' emoji and website usage patterns collected using LDP can be used to collect information about an individual's use of emoji skin tones and political affiliations, unquote. That's really kind of it. The article didn't go into any explanation of like how this attack works or how LDP works to protect privacy other than it, th there was like a brief paragraph that says it adds noise to the data to try and protect user privacy. Kind of going back to the top story, I think the lesson here is just remember nothing is perfect, nothing is unhackable, and you should always just be cautious when using any kind of an electronic device. Our next story, privacy survey shows most people read the terms and conditions and would sell their personal data. This is questionable at best, but let's go ahead and dive in. So this comes from the analytics firm Exploding Topics, who surveyed 1,617 Americans. 47.9% said they would, quote, sell personal data, 26.5% said they would not, and 25.6% were unsure. I always want to see the actual questions on these kinds of surveys because how the question is worded can make a lot of difference. So for example, if I understood the article correctly, when they asked this question, they framed it in the context of like, would you sell it directly? Like if you directly got uh, Amazon gift cards or, you know, uh, something like that. 70.9% think, they should get a cut of firms like Meta and Google selling their data. The 47.9 were like, yeah, I'd sell my data if I got compensated directly. The other 70% were like, well, if Meta and Google are gonna sell my data, I should get a cut. Regarding the whole terms and conditions part, 20% of people say they don't read them, 28.2% say sometimes, and 52.3% say they always read it, and quoting the article, which sounds suspiciously high. That does sound suspiciously high. And again, I, I that's one of those things where I'd like to see what that question was worded like. Because for example, I almost always read at very least like the what information we collect part. I, I don't necessarily read like the arbitration and like, if you live in the EU, here's how to get your data deleted. So, I mean, was it, how was the question worded? Was it like, was it one of those like, which is more accurate? Like I never read it. I sometimes read it. I always read it. Did the question ask them, do you read at least part of it? Because I would believe that some, that most people read or, you know, half of people read at least part of the terms and conditions, which part I don't know, but I don't know. It's, just, it's one of those things where I question how the, the question was worded. And also again, it's one of those things where it's a self-reported survey. So, you know, you gotta wonder how many people are like unconsciously lying or like trying to sound like more educated than they really are. Finally, a real quick one, new digital masks touted as a means of protecting patient privacy. If I understood the article right, this is literally just using AI generated faces for use in medical photos to help prevent the person from being identified as the image sits on the server. It's an interesting idea at the very least. They said that doctors had about the same percentage of like diagnosing and treating it as when it was an actual original photo. So it's really cool to see people trying stuff, trying to find solutions out there for protecting user identities and privacy. That'll take us into politics. And we're gonna start with Sacramento where the Sacramento Municipal Utility District and Sacramento police are violating the state law and utility customers privacy by sharing data without a warrant. This comes from the EFF. Quoting the article, the SMUD searches entire zip codes worth of people's private data and discloses it to police without a warrant or any suspicion of wrongdoing, according to a privacy lawsuit filed Wednesday. So according to the lawsuit, this effectively turns the utility company's customer list into a database of leads for police and has been used to disproportionately target Asian Americans. They also argue that it violates privacy rights under state law because the utility customer data should only be shared, quote, as required under federal or state law, unquote. The catalyst of this seems to be that police are using smart meters to identify people who are potentially growing cannabis without the proper licenses and permits and stuff. The discrimination part comes in because they are disproportionately fining Asian Americans at a rate of 86% 
of all of these, like the results of these data polls. Just real quick to point out, you know, for, for people who think that we're like trying to defend criminals or something, we're not saying they can't use that data. We're saying, go get a warrant. San Francisco's Board of Supervisors grants police more surveillance powers. In a four to seven vote, San Francisco's Board of Supervisors passed a 15 month pilot program granting the SFPD more live surveillance powers. This was despite the objections of a diverse coalition of community groups and civil rights organizations, residents, the Bar Association of San Francisco, and even members of the city's police commission, a civilian oversight body comprising of mayoral and board appointees. The ordinance backed by the mayor and the police department enables the SFPD to access live video streams from private non-city cameras for the purposes of investigating crimes, including misdemeanor and property crimes. Once the SFPD gets access, they can continue live streaming for 24 hours. The ordinance authorizes such access by consent of the camera owner or a court order. Make no mistake, misdemeanors like vandalism or jaywalking happen on nearly every street of San Francisco on any given day, meaning that this ordinance essentially gives the SFPD the ability to put the entire city under live surveillance indefinitely. The article goes on to say, the San Francisco Police Department has previously been caught using these very same cameras to surveil protests following the George Floyd's murder and the SF Pride Parade, facts that went unaddressed by the majority of supervisors who authorized the ordinance. Very unfortunate, and I guess we're just letting you know there. It's a 15-month pilot program, so let's hope it turns out to be too expensive and not useful enough to justify. With that, we'll go to Germany, where German data retention rules do not comply with EU law, according to a top court. The European Court of Justice ruled Tuesday that data retention in Germany is not compatible with EU law, saying that the internet and phone service providers may not store citizens' communications data without cause. Limited data retention is only permissible under certain strict restrictions, including fighting a, quote, severe threat to national security. The German justice minister went on to argue that this clears the way for additional privacy regulations in Germany, and currently the German Telecommunications Act requires data to be stored for four to ten weeks in case law enforcement makes a request, but basically this was what was challenged, and the court said, no, just issue a request if you need the data, we're not going to hold it for you. On a related note, the ECJ also made a similar ruling in France, so that's pretty cool. Our next story comes from Indonesia, where parliament has passed a long-awaited data protection bill. Indonesia's parliament passed in law on Tuesday a personal data protection bill that includes corporate fines and up to six years imprisonment for those found to have mishandled data in the world's fourth most populous country. This authorizes the president to form an oversight body, a maximum fine of 2% of a company's annual revenue, and it could see their, uh, the company's assets confiscated or auctioned off. There is a two-year adjustment period during which companies have to come into compliance. Now, here's, here's the part that kind of worries me. Individuals can be jailed for up to six years for falsifying personal data for personal gain or up to five years for gathering personal data illegally. This might be the first time we're seeing like general non-official disinformation becoming illegal, possibly, unless they're talking about something else. I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, in most parts of the world, it is not illegal to lie to a company. It's just illegal to lie the, to the government. And it looks like this, I, I guess that for personal gain part, like what defines personal gain? I don't know. That's... That's interesting. And then uh, one more plus side, users are entitled to compensation for data breaches and can withdraw consent to use their data. Overall, that looks like a really good law, good for them, but there's definitely a couple spots there that are a little bit concerning. And our final political story comes from India, who has proposed to regulate internet communication services. And this one's very concerning. So India has proposed to regulate internet-based communication services, requiring platforms to obtain a license for operating in the world's second largest wireless market. The 40-page draft proposes to grant the government the ability to intercept messages beaming through internet-powered communication services in the event of, quote, any public emergency or in the interest of the public safety, unquote. It also provides the government immunity against any lawsuit. And the draft also asks that individuals using these licensed communication apps should not, quote, furnish any false particulars, suppress any material information, or impersonate another person, unquote. So again, that could include uh, disinformation. The government immunity part and the intercepting communications, like this is just, 
This has more red flags than a communist party, man. The proposed guidelines, for which the ministry will seek public comments until October 20th, additionally attempts to take broader steps to curb spam messages. India is one of the worst impacted nations by spam calls and texts, a fact that has allowed call screening apps such as Truecaller to make deep inroads in the nation. And we're mentioning that because Truecaller is like a huge enemy of privacy, and they've had a data breach, by the way. They work by basically everyone who downloads the app, it collects your contacts. And then they have like a master database of contacts. So that way, if somebody calls you and they're not in this master database, they're probably suspicious because nobody has them in their contacts. All right, with that, let's move into FOSS, free and open source news. We're going to start off with Mulvad creating a hardware company. They're calling this Tylidus AB. The first thing they're going to sell is a security key that, quote, provides combined levels of flexibility and security never seen before, unquote. They say that they will be basing this on all their years of experience building a trustworthy VPN service. They claim the key will be open source hardware and software, and that it will be programmable by end users. I feel like that last part kind of introduces some risk, but also it's pretty cool that they're basically saying like, hey, it's your key, you bought it, you can do whatever you want with it. Somebody please put Doom on it. Proton Drive has now launched out of beta. Truthfully, this doesn't really mean anything on a practical level for most people. It's just them basically saying, we're confident that this is now mostly bug-free and safe to use for most people. They already open-sourced Proton Drive quite a while ago. There is an Android app that's in beta. There is currently no iOS or desktop app. It's missing a few features I would like to see, like sharing folders. But still, if you're looking for a drive replacement, I mean, Proton does most of what you need it to do. It's still got some growing to do, and I'm sure they're working on it, but it's a good... Uh, cloud storage or cloud sharing solution. And last but not least, this article says, help people in Iran reconnect to Signal, a request to our community. Signal has brought back their, like, you can run a Signal proxy thing in order to help users in Iran sidestep government's censorship and communicate. The new oil is running one. If anyone needs it, go ahead and reach out to us directly. The issue I'm running into with this and the issue that I'm seeing is that from what I'm told, Iran has done a complete internet shutdown. It's not just about blocking certain apps, like they block the entire internet and you cannot communicate outside the country. The way that people can get around that is using things like Tor or uh, Briar for communication. So if you want to help people in Iran, in addition to running a signal proxy, you can download the Snowflake plugin from Tor. Iranians should be using things like Tor to access the internet, Orba if they're on Android, or Briar, again, to communicate because the whole internet is shut down. If you know any Iranians who are struggling over this, try to get those tools in their hands. I'm more than happy to help if I can. With that, we'll move into our Misfits section, and we have just two stories. Our first one says, OpenAI's image generator Dali can now edit human faces. Quoting the article, OpenAI is letting users of its AI art generator program Dolly edit images with human faces. This feature was previously off limits due to fear of misuse, but in a letter sent to Dolly's million plus users, OpenAI says it's opening up access after improving its filters to remove images that contain sexual, political, and violent content. The feature will let users edit images in a number of different ways. They can upload a photograph of someone and generate variations of the picture. For example, they can edit specific features like changing someone's clothing or hairstyle, unquote. So this definitely has a lot of totally valid uses. Like you could pick out a different hairstyle online. I, I could try out different glasses on online, different hair colors, and also a lot of room for uh, deep fakes and, and abuse. So just something to keep your eye on and something to know that is out there now. And our last story, just a real quick one, it says, this site will tell you if photos of you were used to train AI, and it's haveibeentrained.com. We talked about this up at the top about the lady who found medical images on the AI training set. This is the tool that she used to find it. It does require you to upload an image. If you have a specific image you're curious of, you wanna see if it's in a training set, this is what you would do. All right, with that, we're gonna move into the Q&A section. So we got three comments this week. One of them was letting us know about the Optus data breach. 
the other two were both from M. And both of them were kind of multi-part questions, so let's go ahead and jump in. The first one says, do either of you run a home server? And if so, what was the most helpful resource you found for decision-making on OS and hardware? I don't think Henry self-hosts anything. I could be wrong. I run a Nextcloud server and a Jellyfin server, and I honestly just used old computers I had lying around. This person says, I find myself getting stuck on things like figuring out how to use full disk encryption with any of the most used OS choices. There are a dozen other questions when you start to consider what's needed for data integrity. Okay, feel free to, to comment in the comments and correct me if I'm wrong, because it's entirely possible I'm wrong. I'm, I'm pretty new to this whole self-hosting thing. I feel like you're really overthinking this. So like I said, I've been using Nextcloud. I don't think of my Nextcloud as a backup. M talks in the last sentence about wanting to have a good three, two, one backup model where one of the locations is always online and accessible. My thing is, my Nextcloud server is literally 10 feet over there in my closet. And if my house burns down, that's going with it. So for me, that's not even part of my backup procedure because it's not offsite. Unless you host it on a, like a VPS somewhere else. And then at that point, you're getting into questions of like, well, it's not encrypted and stuff like that. I think you're overthinking it a little bit in terms of like OS and hardware, uh, especially M said in the, in the original post that they're not even gonna make it open up to the internet. So you don't really have to worry too much about attackers. Just get reliable hardware. I mean, make sure it does what you need it to do because you talked about like using snapshots and making sure the motherboard supports it. But I mean, beyond that, like you don't need the hardest security. You don't need, I, I don't know. Again, again I'm, I'm new to self-hosting. Maybe I'm totally off base here. If so, definitely let us know in the comments and, and someone else can leave better advice. But to me, again, it sounds like you're really overthinking this and overcomplicating it. I just picked the OS I was most familiar with, which is Debian. I've heard a lot of people say that Scent is better, uh, like uh, Fedora and CentOS, because they have like SE Linux enabled by default. And uh, I mean, I, again, if it's not even gonna touch the internet, that already reduces a huge attack surface. So just pick something that's reliable and pick something that works. And second question was about the situation in Iran, and we kind of touched on that already. We're, uh, you know, asking how they can best help the protesters. Specifically, M's friends have seen Tor and Signal put out requests for people to help with proxies. My question is, if someone only has a laptop, would you recommend they want to run one of these proxies locally or spin up a VPS? I know with Tor, at least, if you run a node, they automatically note the uptime on your node. And the more uptime you have, the more, like, confidence rating they give it and the more traffic they send it. So if it's a laptop, they're like, if you just like stick it in a corner and run it 24 seven, then yeah, you can totally run a node. If it's like your personal laptop that you're constantly turning off and turning on, that might be a little different. They noted that Tor is also asking people to run Snowflake, which uh, was my one of my recommendations. Um, Snowflake, for those of you who haven't heard of it, is it's a plugin for your browser that uses WebRTC and turns your browser into a Tor node, not an exit node, so don't panic. It's It's totally safe to use. I use it all the time and I've definitely seen an uptick in, in uh, users using Snowflake lately because it tells you like how many people are connected. It doesn't tell you who they are, just how many people have connected in the last 24 hours. Um, so yeah, that's a really good one. They said, which VPS do you recommend for someone who wants to set a ceiling on monthly cost? Uh, I used Namecheap for quite a while. I didn't have any issues with them. They admittedly do not have a perfect track record, but they claim to care about user privacy. They are based in America too, which is also kind of a ding, but uh, currently I'm using 1984. They're also really good. They're based in Iceland. Their website's a little janky sometimes, but I've never had any issues with the actual service. And they said, alternately, would it be more effective to donate to an organization that provisions these proxies at scale? And do you know of any? I don't know of any, but I mean, yeah, if you can't afford a VPS and you, uh, don't have a device lying around, then certainly there's nothing wrong with donating. I don't know any that do proxies specifically, but I mean, there's lots of great organizations out there that are fighting for uh, user rights and internet accessibility. There's, um, 
you know, there's EFF, there's STOP, which I think is specific to New York. There's a lot of really good organizations out there who are, are fighting for privacy rights. Again, I don't know any that run proxies other than maybe like Tor Project, but yeah, if, if running a proxy yourself is not feasible either due to cost or just due to technical skill, I personally think you, you can't go wrong donating to one of these organizations for sure. So that was all of our news for this week. We had some big news. Again, we have a tool that allegedly collects almost all of internet traffic, an Amazon employee that was let go for a social media post. We talked about the situation in Iran. We talked about Mulvad starting their own hardware company, lots of stuff going on out there. And as always, any of those stories that are ongoing, like the this lawsuit against Meta, for example, we will do our best to keep you guys updated. So be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for any updates. If you want to help support us and ensure that we stay around for a long time to give you those updates, we have two ways to do that. We have Patreon and we have Monero. Patreon is recurring donations, or you can sign up once and then just like cancel if that's how you want to do it. That's totally fine. You also don't have to do the $10 a month. A lot of people don't don't know that. If you can't afford $10 a month, that's totally fine. You can do less. You just won't get the benefits. But I mean, some people don't care about those. And we'll talk about that in a second. The benefits are a promo segment free video. So you wouldn't have to watch this promo segment every time. You can get a copy of our show notes for kind of a TLDR read. You can ask questions like M just did this week. If you don't care about any of that and you want to donate, but also want to preserve your privacy a little bit better than Patreon, we have Monero, which is a privacy-focused cryptocurrency. We don't see who you are, but we do see the donations. They've been extremely helpful. Thank you all of you guys who have donated. We really appreciate your support to help us keep going. Thank you for listening to Surveillance Report. The final thing we want to ask, as always, share the podcast around. Make sure you are subscribed. If you're on a platform that lets you leave a rating, be sure to do that. We are trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy, and every little bit helps. So thank you guys again for listening and we will see you next week.